0: series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: And all God's people say, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue to study through this powerful, powerful book. We've been looking at the grace of giving and this is part four in that series. As we move through the book, I'm gonna to talk tonight about the effectiveness of grace giving. The effectiveness of grace giving. The word give is found 267 times in the New Testament. Of those times, 143 of them are in the Gospels. Now, giving is one of the most important words in our vocabulary. It's in one of the most important words in our Christian life. Why? Because giving is rooted In the love that the Holy Spirit living in us produces in our life. Grace giving is simply Christ living his life in and through us. It's the real demonstration of living grace. If you ever want to see living grace demonstrated, you say, Wayne, no, it's in love. Wait a minute. Giving is out of love. That's that's, That's what love produces. It's the living illustration of living grace. Say it with me, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, that giving is the heart of God. Now, last week we finished chapter 8 and we saw how sound and how solid that giving grace is in our day, even in the 21st century. We saw the provision of, of grace giving. And the thing that really excites me, and I love to re- review because you get to at least hit on it just a little bit more, is that grace giving is the only way, and God set it up that way, for us to ensure that our needs will always be met. Grace giving is the key to that whole thing. And, once, and it's just simply letting Jesus be Jesus in us. I heard about a farmer who learned to give and then give more. And all of his friends watched him and it seemed like his crops were, were more every year and he had more and more. And the farmer kept giving more and more and more. And so one day the farmers, other farmers came to him and said, man, we can't understand. I mean, you don't really have it and still you give and yet you end up having more in the end result. And he said, I don't know how to explain it. He said, I just take my shovel and shovel into God's bin. And he turns around and shovels into my bin. And the difference is he's got a much bigger shovel. (laughs) That's about the way it works, isn't it? Verse 13, Paul shows us that giving is not so that other people's life might be made easier while we give everything we have and can't even pay our bills. He knows the skeptics are around. Everybody's always trying to picking on this to pick on this subject. He says in verse thirteen, "For this is not the e for the ease of others. The word ease means to free others, and for your affliction, that's not what it's about." He says, "But by way of equality." Now, the word equality is the key in, in that, that it means something that's fair and equitable to everybody that's concerned. See, those who receive from those who have are not free from giving to others once they get their feet, or get back on their feet in life. What goes around will come around, and he, and he proves that in verse 14. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, equity giving. You see, that's how we need each other. The poor saints in Jerusalem would come to a time in their life that they'd get back on their feet. And, 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 and even they would learn then to give just as the Corinthians had, and maybe even to the Corinthians. If the Corinthians were willing to give in their time of abundance, then they could count on the fact that others in the body of Christ would in turn give to them when they had need. Again, And I I hope you've got it down. Grace giving is the only way to ensure that all of your needs will always be met. I got an email this past week from one of our members who I just dearly love. And he was reminding me of something. He had seen it in his quiet time this week. And it's in Proverbs chapter 11, 24 and 25. You see, this is nothing new to the New Testament. This has always been this way. And Proverbs 11, 24 says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. And that's a principle all through scriptures. We saw Luke 6.38 last week and other scriptures that we have read. So the provision in grace giving is absolutely sound. It's rock solid. Why? Because it's in God's Word. But the precaution of grace giving is that we never hoard what God has given to us. Now, there's a fine line from saving up and and having some savings when times of need come, like the proverb says about the ant that prepares for the winter during the summer. There's a fine line from doing that and from trusting in those savings rather than entrusting God there's a real fine line that you have to draw there. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, Paul takes us back to a story that comes out of the book of Exodus, and he tells a story of how God met the needs of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, what he gave to them was manna. Manna is that little word that means, what is it? (laughs) God has a sense of humor. And he had these little thin white flakes that would come down from heaven every day. And it would nourish them. And it would be exactly what they needed just for that day. It was only a good for that day. It was not too much. And it was not too little. But just enough. Some of them needed more. Some of them needed less. But nobody had too much or too little. It had exactly what they needed. Now, they were told by God and through Moses... That they were not to leave any of it laying around in case they felt like that maybe God, since he's in heaven and he's getting old, probably forgot his promise. And since he, maybe he wouldn't bring the manna the next day. So they stored a little up so they could have some on the side, maybe for a snack between meals. And you know what the the story was. They were told not to do that. They didn't listen. (laughs) Duh, that's the human nature in all of us. And as a result of it, they ended up with rotten, maggot-infested manna. We are never to store up what God has given because the result is we start trusting on what we've stored up rather than trusting God to provide for our needs. We are to totally give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to yield to Him and allow Him to tell us what He wants to do with the money that He's entrusted to each of us. From what Paul has taught in 2 Corinthians 8, it seems that God is not so much concerned with how much we give. You've got the widow's mite and the rich man's gift. But what is really concerning him is how much is left over. You see, a wealthy person can give a gift, but he can keep a whole lot back for himself. And, and God's more concerned with what you're doing with what's left over. Whenever God chooses to allow us to live in abundance, you can rest assured there's somebody in our life that he'll, God will bring us to that is in need. And it's a season of our life to where we're supposed to be giving to other people. Well, we also saw the protection in grace giving last week. In verses 16 through 24, Paul outlines the character of those who are going to handle the money that is taken up in Corinth. He mentions three men who were to go to Corinth to begin to collect that offering. Now, one was Titus. He tells who he is. The other two, we don't know who they are. It was like Paul's finance committee. From these, we learn a lot about the character in churches of people who are to handle the money. There are people, first of all, that have a God-given burden to serve God's leaders. It's a real desire to help God's people who have the burden to carry out what that burden is. Secondly, they had a burden for the whole message of the gospel, which was not just saving grace, but living grace. Thirdly, they had a desire to see God, not man, Glorified in the giving of his people. Fourthly, they had a reputation for honesty, so much so that the churches had no trouble appointing them. And fifthly, they had a cooperative spirit, now listen carefully, to work with Paul, not Lord over Paul. Well, today we come into chapter nine, which to me is every bit as exciting as chapter eight. In fact, it might even be more exciting as we get into it. I I want us to see tonight the effectiveness. Of grace giving. What, are the, what is the effect that it has on other people? What is the effectiveness of grace giving? And there are three things I want us to see in verses 1 through 5. First of all, the act of grace giving is contagious. You can write that down, just like it's, it's contagious. In verse 1, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. Now, that word superfluous is the Greek word persevo, which means over and above or more than enough. One Greek scholar that I trust very much said that he could translate it this way. It is not necessary. That little word superfluous kind of throws us. There is no purpose, in other words. So Paul says that it's not necessary. Uh, There's no purpose to write to you about this ministry to the saints. The phrase to write to you is in the present tense, which means to keep on writing to you. So it's not necessary. There's no purpose for me to keep on writing to you about this ministry to the saints. The phrase ministry to the saints refers to that offering that they're taking up in the churches, not just Corinth, but other churches for the poor saints over in Jerusalem. He doesn't have to keep on telling them what the offering was all about. You see, a year before, it was the Corinthians who who not only knew about that offering but they pledged to give generously to it just a year before. So possibly the reason he even had to bring it up again is because Paul knew something about human nature. There's something about us as humans that uh, we need to get a hold of, and that is we're great starters. We're great starters, but most of us are pretty poor finishers, and Paul knew that. Perhaps he had sensed that in their initial eager desire to give that money, Some of that enthusiasm had sort of ground to a halt, and he needed to re-encourage them in it. Now, we must remember that in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, when he brought up this offering, he he used the Macedonian believers and and the extraordinary giving that they gave. They said far beyond their ability. He used that to encourage the Corinthians to give, the wealthy Corinthians. But what we didn't know in chapter 8, we now know in chapter 9. Oddly enough, it was the desire of the Corinthians, the enthusiasm of the wealthy Corinthians to give (laughs) that inspired the Macedonians to give. And Paul is bringing it full circle. Look at verse 2. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. The word readiness there, your readiness, is the Greek word prothumia, which means your eagerness, your willingness of mind. You've made up your mind on something. It's not something he has to convince them to do, to do something. I know your readiness. I know your eagerness, your willingness to give. And it appears from this that the Corinthians were willing to give. They just needed some help in taking up the offering they he didn't they didn't have to be convinced to give they but something needed to happen to get that offering taken place I thought about this when I was studying it i'm very willing i can't say that i'm eager but i'm willing to take the garbage out every week but i constantly need some prompting from diana who's the helper of the holy spirit to get me to do that and paul knew that about them he he's not trying to persuade them That they be eager, he knows that eagerness is there. By mentioning Achaia, Paul evidently includes them in the sphere of influence of which the Corinthians had had. I mean, these—they must have had some kind of meeting, and when that was brought up, the Corinthians just overwhelmingly said, "We are going to give." And these were the rich folks, and the poor folks in Macedonia said, "Whoa, we're going to give too." And right at this point, they've outgiven the Corinthians. Point is that what Paul is saying is that the zeal of the Corinthians to give had stirred up a lot of folks. He said most of them. He stirred up most of them. Not all of them. I like that phrase, but most of them. Why would he say that, way? Because giving is never the popular subject of people who are walking after the flesh. I wish you could say every church had people that walked in the Spirit that have no trouble with giving. But it's just not that way. And Paul knew it wasn't that way. So he stirred up most, they stirred up most of them. The word stirred up is the Greek word "erethezo." It means to provoke, to excite, to stimulate. The intention to give that was expressed by the Corinthians had become contagious. Contagious to the believers in Macedonia, contagious to the believers in Achaia, to where they're already ready to give. It excited others to give. Now you have to get in this message with me. Have you ever been around somebody that's a giver? And because they have been so willing to unselfishly give, which is a work of the Holy Spirit in their life, it excited you to give. It, it, it convinced you that you need to give. Has that ever happened to you? I remember in 1981 when my mama died. Boy, I miss her. And when I found out about it, I had that 73 Buick that I told you about that I used to leave with the keys in it, hoping somebody would steal it because it overheat 30 miles from town. And we were praying about how we were going to get home. How were we going to get, Stephen and Stephanie were little, and how we were going to get home. I was doing my mother's funeral, and I want to take my family to my mother's funeral. How were we going to get there? My car wouldn't make it. Could we rent a car? We were going through all of that. We didn't have much money. And about that time, the sheriff there, Calvin Moore, sheriff of Holmes County, Mississippi, and Doris, his sweet wife, called us up on the phone, and they said, Wayne, listen, he was one of our deacons. And he said, Wayne, we've been praying about you, and we know about your car and he said, I want you to take our car to go home for that funeral. Now, you have to understand something. My 73 Buick, if I loaned it to somebody, that would not be a favor. (laughs) But this particular car... Was a was a '98 Oldsmobile. Now I'm not talking about the year. I'm talking about remember the model. There was the Oldsmobile '88, the Oldsmobile '98. Son, that was a nice car. I mean, it had everything on it. It almost brushed your teeth. It it had air conditioning. It actually worked. It had it had such uh, uh, quilted seat covers. You just felt like you were in bed somewhere when you drove. And, and the radio had speakers on the sides, and you could. Oh, it was it was wonderful. But it was brand new and i said to calvin calvin you can't let me borrow your car it's brand new you don't do that with a new car you put it in the garage and dare anybody to ask you to use it calvin said oh it's not my car it's god's car and god let me have it so that i could let you have it to go home and do your mama's funeral and then dan and i just cried and hollered and thanked the lord I, I drove over to his house in my 73 buick which he was going to keep <laughs> that was a real trait And I drove back home in that Oldsmobile, but right before I left his house, he said, and by the way, Wayne, you're going to need money for gas. You're going to need money for food, and you may need to stay on the road. Here's my credit card. I want you to take it and use it any way you see fit. And I want to tell you what that did to Diane and I. And to this day, I'm 62, and I don't know what I was then, maybe in my mid-30s, but to this day, I remember that. And it incited me. It provoked me the next time the church gave me a car. And the first time somebody asked me to use that car, I said, absolutely, without any question. Yes, because it's not my car. It's God's car. What He did for me incited me to do it for somebody else. We've got to understand, folks, the effect That grace giving has on other people. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing in the body of Christ? For one another? To incite one another to good deeds? Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stimulate. And that word means to provoke. It's the same word. To to incite one another to love and to good deeds. The Corinthians had been such a great encouragement to the Macedonians to give. It incited them. It stimulated them. It was a contagious thing. But remember, that was over a year before. Now Paul doesn't want the Corinthian believers to be embarrassed before the other churches, the very ones that they had had excited about giving because of of, of the lack of their own follow-through in what they had done. He doesn't want them to do that. So the bottom line is that grace giving in its desire and in its follow-through is contagious. It affects the body of Christ. When God speaks to your heart and you express the desire to give, I want you to understand tonight, somebody's watching you. And whether you give and follow through or whether you don't give is going to affect them. It's going to have a deep effect upon them. It's contagious in the body of Christ. Well, so we see then that that, that act of giving is so is contagious. But the refusal of grace-giving is confusing. The refusal of grace-giving is confusing. When we don't give, when we choose not to give, for what, whatever our reason is, the effect is very confusing in the body of Christ. Matter of fact, it's humiliating to the body of Christ. Uh, I love that commercial. I can't now think of what it, who, who, who does it, but it's that woo hoo How many of you know what I'm talking about in that commercial? (laughs) And the guy cuts the tree down and it falls on his car. (laughs) He's trying to stop the tree to... The little kid's trying to hit the ball and he let the bat flies out of his hand, breaks the, the door in the back of the house. You know, when people aren't giving in the body of Christ, for whatever their reason is, and you walk by them, you ought to just not say anything to them, just go by and go, woo hoo 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 Because it says, People do the stupidest things. That's that's the that's the caption on that commercial. People do the stupidest thing. I hate to use the word stupid, but it's the only word I know how to use. When a believer doesn't give, that is stupid, and it confuses the whole body of Christ. We don't know half the damage we do to our testimony and the testimony of the body of Christ when we bow up and refuse to give, especially when we don't follow through with what we pledged that we were going to do. When one doesn't give as God intends, it's just a humiliation to the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 3, But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, I, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Now, the brethren he talks about there, again, is these three, is three, three men. Paul, it's, it's Titus and two men with him. We, we don't know who they are. He's sending them first. He, Paul's coming later on, but he's sending them over to prepare it, to make sure that they're getting this offering done Because he doesn't want them to be ashamed. He doesn't want them to humiliate the body of Christ in giving. Verse 4. Otherwise, if they didn't come and you didn't have this offering prepared, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Man, the whole church is going to be put to shame. Paul doesn't know exactly who will be going with him. He's going to be coming with a group, a little entourage, that's going to come over there. He doesn't know who, but there may be some Macedonians with him. We do do know that later on in the book of Acts, it gives us a list of the people who most frequently travel with Paul, and three of them at least were from Macedonia. Acts 20 and verse 4 says, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, Berea being in Macedonia. That's one the son of Paris, and of Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica. That's another city there. So there's three people. And Gaius of derby that's Galatia, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So that at least in that group, there were three from Macedonia. Now, can you imagine the excitement of these, this group of had three Macedonians with Paul, and they're going to Corinth they're going to the church that incited them to give, and they're walking down the road and thinking, woo this is going to be so much fun to see what a wealthy church gives. We've given out of our poverty. What in the world are they? have they given? Man, this is going to be some kind of offering. And then Paul says, if they get there and find no money in the plate, oops, it's kind of like being excited to go see Tennessee play this year. (laughs) They were talked about at the first of the season they might even play in the national championship game. And people got so excited to see them play. Oops. Well, that's a discouragement. That's a humiliation. Vanderbilt beat us. I mean, he just... (laughs) Paul knows. Paul knows how much discouragement this would bring if the Corinthian church didn't do what they said they were going to do. So he sends these three guys over, already mentioned, to make certain they would be ready. He doesn't want the Corinthian church and himself and his whole group, especially the Macedonians, to be put to shame. That word shame in verse 4 is the Greek word kateskino. It's an interesting word. It's the word that means to be so confounded, dishonored, and disgraced. Puzzled, yes. Dishonored, absolutely, and disgraced. The root idea is to be so humiliated when something happens that one shrinks back and finds a place to hide out of absolute humiliation and shame. Let me ask you a question. I want to make sure you're you're tracking with me tonight. Ever wonder who's watching your giving? Let Let me ask you a question. Mom and Dad, what kind of example are you setting your children? Are the little ones watching you as you set the example? You better believe they are. Are you sending a contagious message by the way you live and by the way you give so that your children coming up under you will have absolutely no problems whatsoever when it comes to giving because they equate living and giving together and you have set the example for them or is it a shame in your family when it comes to giving I, you know I'm just gonna say this because I love y'all and I'm not picking on anybody but it's a shame when the budget of the church doesn't, is not met because people will not give, that is a shame on the testimony of God's people. It's humiliating. And the world looks at us and says, I thought you people said you trusted God. Well, you're giving. Sure doesn't reflect it. The act of grace giving is contagious. It stirs the hearts of other believers to do what is right. It always will. Provokes them, incites them. The refusal in grace giving is really confusing. It brings shame and disgrace when the church refuses to give. And especially, especially when they have said that they would give and didn't follow through. Finally, the heart of grace giving is very clear. And when I say clear, what I mean is it's cleansed. It's clear of any fleshly motive. If it's true grace giving, there's no agenda with it. There's no strings attached. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange before your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now, once again, the brethren, he mentioned some several times, that's those three guys. Now, as we said, Paul is going to bring another group with him to actually take the offering, to pick it up. And when he brings this group, he's got some Macedonians in the group. So you see two different groups. He he sends three on, Titus and two others, but he's bringing another group later on. You can see really how much Paul cared for these people by doing this because he didn't want them to be ashamed. Paul's not going to receive any of the money of this, this offering. It's going to the right causes, but he doesn't want them to be ashamed. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you, and arrange beforehand your previously promised, and here's the phrase, bountiful gift. Now The word bountiful gift is an unusual word to be used here, but it says volumes. It's the word efflogia. Ephlogia means it's an act of praise. Efflogia. But here it means the act of blessing someone. That's really what praise is, is the act of blessing someone. But that's what he uses. The word occurs twice, in two successive clauses in the verse. He says, before your previously promised bountiful gift. Then he says, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift. Two times. Now this word, bountiful gift, ephlogia, which means an act of blessing somebody, involves a beautiful promise in it. No believer can participate in grace giving, which is bestowing a blessing upon someone and not be blessed himself. It's reciprocal. Grace-giving blesses both the giver and the ones who received the gift. Now Paul points to the fact that the Corinthians would now experience God's blessing for having given. Once they give it, they're going to be blessed. And what a profound truth. Acts 20 and verse 35 says, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the work, words of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ that he himself said, It is more blessed to what? To give than to what? Than to receive. More blessed. That's that that same word. Their needs would be met. We've already seen that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about your your monetary needs down the road being met. This blessing is, is much, much more than that. God's spiritual blessing of experiencing his presence in our life, it far outweighs him even taking care of our monetary needs. Oh, the joy, the joy that floods our souls when we do what God says and we begin to experience for ourselves the fullness of the one who lives within us. That's what he's saying. Oh, you're going to be blessed. But not, not physically and tangibly like that. Oh, sure, that'll come along. But inwardly, the, the true blessing of your life but Paul continues to make a very important point about the motive of this, of this giving. Grace giving is never affected by the fact that you'll receive a blessing back. Even though you're, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and you will receive a blessing, even though you know that it'll, he'll even take care of your needs, that's not why a person gives. That's not why he gives. He puts a phrase at the end of this verse that qualifies it. He says, and not affected by covetousness. The word covetousness is the word pleonexia, and it means greed, outright greed. Not, fallen, not having been snared by the trap of greed. There is no other agenda in what you do. Not affected by greed. But what he does right here, he shows you that there are two kinds of giving. He brings up the trap of those who are giving but because of their flesh wanting something. There's a string attached. They either want something back from monetarily or they want to get their way in, in the way that they give. You see, to a lot of people in churches today, giving has become a form of power. It's a power play. I, was, I served in one church and, and somebody wrote me a letter and said, Wayne, you don't know who I represent and we're the givers of this church. And if you don't do this and if you don't do that, we'll show you who we are, buddy. We'll withdraw our funds. Dr. Charles Stanley, when he first went to First Baptist Church of Atlanta, had 400 people, the rich people in that group, walk up to him one day and gave him an envelope. He said, in that envelope, there's enough money to to carry you for the next five years, but you must resign and leave this place because we don't like you and we don't like what you're doing. You see, that's a different kind of giving, isn't it? There's a string attached. There's an agenda to it. And it's absolutely humiliating to the Lord to his church. Grace giving is something entirely different. It's that which originates in a yielded heart to God. It's the very heart of Jesus himself living his life in and through us. It always results in blessing, but it's never exercised for that purpose. It's, It's done because of love for him. It's done because of glorifying him. But it always receives a blessing. In contrast, That to the giving heart, that gut giving heart, contrast that to the one snared by the whims and the greed of the flesh. You see, greed is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And then he says, when all of it's put together, it amounts to idolatry. So this is the contrast that Paul draws here. And that's why I say grace giving is clear. It's clear of any of that kind of false motive. It's clear of any strings attached whatsoever. When we first give of ourselves to the Lord, and that's the key, the Macedonians showed us that in chapter 8, then our motive for giving, giving will always be his motive. It'll be pure, and then the rest will be history. It'll take care of itself. So the act of grace-giving is contagious. It has an effect. It has a true effect on the body of Christ. The refusal of grace-giving is confusing, shameful, humiliating to the body. The heart of grace-giving, however, is clear of any fleshly agenda or evil motive. I got some encouraging quotes as I was studying this past year, this past week, past year, this past week. About the, many centuries, all, all through the centuries, people that have learned this truth, and they leave us a heritage here, and I thought I'd, you, you might be encouraged by them. A merchant of St. Petersburg at his own cost supported several native missionaries in India and gave liberally to the cause of Christ at home. On being asked how he could afford to do it, he replied, Before my conversion, when I served the world and self, I did it on a grand scale and at the most lavish expense. And when God, by His grace, called me out of darkness, I resolved that Christ and His cause should have more than I had ever spent for the world. And as to giving so much, it is God who enables me to do it. For at my conversion, I solemnly promised that I would give to His cause a fixed proportion of all that my business brought into me. And every year since I have made that promise, it has brought to me, it said, and every year since I made that promise, it has brought me in about double what I did the year before, so that I can easily give and double my gifts for his service. Another quote John Bunyan tells us, a man there was, some called him mad. Some, a man there was, a, the more he gave, the more he had. <laughs> And then there's the truth and instruction in the inscription on the Italian tombstone. What I gave away, I saved. What I spent, I used. What I kept, I lost. That was on a gravestone. Giving to the Lord, says another, is but transporting our goods to a higher floor. And, says Dr. Barrow, in defiance of all the torture and malice and might of the world, the liberal man will ever be rich. For God's providence is his estate. He's talking about in liberal, he's talking about freely giving. God's wisdom and power, his defense. God's love and favor, his reward. And God's word, his security. i tell you what, I don't know what God's saying to you. But he just encourages my heart in these messages to realize that giving is the reflex of Jesus being Jesus in me. I love that little chorus. Jesus, be Jesus in me. No longer me but thee. Resurrection power fill me this hour. Jesus, be Jesus in me. You know why I sing that song? Because people are sick of me. But you know what? They're sick of you. They just want to see him living His life in us. How's your giving? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.